Good morning. Good morning. There I am. Morning. Testing. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I think there I am. All right. Good morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. It's good to see everyone. On this wonderful rainy day. Told my, said to Leslie on the way in, I said, this is what it must be like to live in Seattle. Always cold and rainy. But welcome to Haven Ridge. It's a blessing to worship the Lord with you this morning. A couple announcements as we get started. Uh, welcome to everyone here and those online. We'll be uh, live streaming again today. So uh, it's a blessing to have that option available to us now. Um, for anyone who's not able to make it on Sunday mornings, that live stream is available through YouTube and through the church app. Is that right, Jake? Jake is nodding ahead. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so welcome everyone this morning. Um, just a, a, a quick uh, housekeeping matter just to keep everybody in the loop. We'd mentioned at our last budget meeting that uh, we had yet to re-sign that rent agreement um, uh, uh, with our landlords. Um, that had been something we'd agreed on back in the summer. COVID hit, everything kind of fell apart. We knew it was just kind of in the wings. Well, Jeff had contacted uh, Alan and said, hey, we, we need to sign this thing. So we're in the process of doing that. Um, same graduated rent scale. You know, nothing really has changed there. It's just getting it in a written format. So just keeping everybody up to date. You know, we're in the process of re-signing that lease. Um, so we continue to have a place to gather and worship. Uh, let's see, next Sunday, which is the 21st, um, that will be, is that right, 21st? Yeah. I think next Sunday, yeah, next Sunday, 21st. Uh, Women's Bible Day will be meeting here at the church at 6.30, be going through chapter 4 uh, of your current study book. So that'll be next Sunday at 6.30. The following Sunday, well, I don't know if that's the following Sunday, the 28th, that's the last Sunday of the month, will be our uh, monthly men's gathering. That'll be here at 6.30. Uh, as well. Uh, let's see. Also, just uh, as we do every week, take a look around. Notice who's not here, who's not you know, worshiping with us, um, and make a point to reach out to them um, uh, today if you're able to, you know, certainly. Uh, just tell them they were missed, uh, that we love them, and uh, you know, just ask how can you pray for them. But follow up on those uh, church family members who aren't here. Uh, whether you know why they're here or not, um, you know, reach out to them. Just let them know that they're loved, they're cared for, and that we miss them. Uh, also, just a reminder of our COVID policy, just be conscious of uh, uh, your distance with others. Um, you know, whether you're wearing a mask or not, uh, consider the help of others. Um, you know, keep distance between you and others during conversation, conversation especially those, um, you know, who are wearing masks. Um, as opportunity provides, make use of outside space, um, you know, especially on 
clearer days than today um, you know, for conversation. If you or your children use the restroom, please make use of the cleaning items that are in there to wipe down any surfaces that you or they touch. Uh, and I think, Alan, is that it? Any other? Yes, evangelism training coming um, in the spring. That's what we're aiming for. So more details on that, uh, just to let you know that's you know on the calendar. Alan are kind of working through the details uh, for that. Um, and then uh, we put this question before the church body every you know every week. This is something we're doing, keeping in line with our vision for 2021. What are you doing to keep the gospel central in your life? I'm going to call to worship this morning. Oh, and one other, one other note, um, that uh, Melanie, Melanie Vaughn's father, Don, passed away uh, last night. I don't know how many of you knew, but um, you know, he's been battling sickness for very quite some time. Um, so the doctors had said, you know, he was kind of in the final stages, but uh, he passed away about 10 o'clock last night. So we're going to pray for him, um, you know, or pray for his family this morning. Um, and do make a point to just reach out to them, um, you know, for encouragement today. All right, well, our call to worship comes from Book of Second Kings, chapter 25. A particular point where we're reminded of the grace of God toward us. I have at the close of, uh, of, of Second Kings, Jehoiakim, who was the last king of Judah before the exile, was an evil king. And scripture reports that he did evil in the same way as his fathers. And we see here the grace that's given to him. Second Kings 20, uh, 25 verse 27. Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 7th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of, Ju- of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day of his life. We're reminded here of the grace God gives us as our king. Uh, the grace given to sinners, deserving of eternal prison, yet set free through the shed blood of Christ, and given not a month's supply of grace, but, but grace every day, daily grace. Spurgeon wrote this, he said, never go hungry while the daily bread of grace is on the table of mercy. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you so easily wrapped up in the concerns of everyday life. And we forget the daily bread that's given to us, the table of mercy. And so, Father, we come. We come today to worship you, to be reminded of our need for Jesus, to be reminded of the infinite blessings that we have in Christ to be shored up in our faith and strengthened for the work that is ahead. So, Father, would you come and would you meet with us? Would you fill your saints with your Holy Spirit and equip us for the work that you have, that in all things you may be glorified? And, Father, we do lift up to you those who are suffering this morning, especially the Vaughn family, the loss of Don, 
Lord, reminded that eternity is but a breath away. Sometimes that's veiled, and sometimes you give us a window into the pages of the future through illness and through sickness. So, Father, we grieve with this family who's lost a dear loved one. Father, we ask that you would grant mercy to their family. That Christ would be an ever-present comfort in their time of need. That you would give them mercy and grace and the peace that surpasses all understanding and all temporary comfort that earthly words can provide. May we as a church wrap our arms around them to be your hands and feet, to shed kindness and mercy and love on them as they grieve. And may grieving have its proper season in their life. And if Father, in all things, whether it's in life or in death, so that you may be exalted. So Lord, would you come? Would you come meet with us today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if everyone to stand together, we're going to have our prayer of confession. Again, if you haven't been a part of that, just uh, you, can, you can read it. You don't have to say it with us. If you don't know what it says, that's fine. But uh, it's just our attempt to humble ourselves before the Lord so that we can worship Him in a way that is pleasing and acceptable. So um, if you'll say this with me. Father, we confess our inability to ascribe to you the worship you deserve. We recognize our need for the Holy Spirit to stir our affections and filter our praise. We confess that our imperfections and ask that your kindness would lead us to repentance. We acknowledge that you alone are worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our affections, and worthy of our worship. We confess that our hope is often built on lesser things instead of the sufficiency of Christ. We confess that our joy is often determined by idols and not the finished work of Jesus. To this end, we pray that you would make us worthy of your calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ.
So before we move to the next song, so very quickly, I'd like to uh, do what we've done many times in the past, and that's to not talk about what we feel, but what we know. And so for the encouragement of the body, I understand that those listening online will not be able to hear your response, but I'll try to repeat that. I think it's encouraging um, that we share with one another what, what shapes us, what drives us, what motivates us, what anchors us from, from day to day with regards to the truth from the Word of God. So I'll just give you a moment to just say out loud what truth you claim, what truth you know, what truth you hold to from the Bible uh, that, that anchors you, that helps to drive and motivate you, and that helps to bring you to a place of worship because you don't know what someone next to you might need to hear in terms of truth today. So I'll give you just a second. You just say what that is. God is sovereign and Jesus is Savior. That God is the source of our truth and all truth. grace is sufficient. The gospel is not reliant on the wisdom of men or cleverness of speech. God is love and he shows us what love is. God has a standard, and regardless of what the law of the land might say, we have an allegiance to God's standard first and always. God is faithful.
have all the kids come down. Come on down front. Watch your step. Don't trip over anything. Sit down and spread out. Put your arms out. Make sure you can't touch anybody. <laughs> it's good to see everybody this morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Good, good, good. Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you like superheroes? Yeah, oh, Batman. Batman. All right. What's your suit favorite? Okay. All right. What's yours? Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. Okay. Who else? What? Captain America. I kind of figured that. Yeah. All right. Who else? Who's got? It? Who else has got one? Supergirl. Supergirl. Okay. All right. Okay. Great. We all love superheroes. We love a good superhero movie or superhero story, right? Hang on, I just lost my notes. <laughs> um, well, the Bible tells of like the greatest superhero story ever. I mean, one that would blow all the ones in Hollywood out of the water. Okay, and that story is the victory that Jesus has over Satan. Okay, the victory that Jesus Christ has over Satan and how he became, uh, how he conquered Satan. Okay. Now, there's a lot said about Satan in Scripture. I'll give you a couple characteristics. I mean, you think of like a supervillain, okay? You think of the real supervillain, which would be Satan, that Scripture describes him as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, that he's the god of this world, in a sense, who, uh, who blinds the minds of those who are perishing, that he snares unbelieve uh, those who are unbelieving until they're captured to do his will okay sounds like a pretty bad guy right 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 really really bad okay john some sums this up in his uh, in his first letter and he says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one okay that's a big villain right and if you watch any of the superhero movies or you read any of the superhero comics you know big villain needs what in order to beat it a big superhero right gotta have a big superhero okay well enter jesus okay now you know the difference between fiction and non-fiction right what's fiction somebody tell me something that's fiction okay all right so okay the superhero stories okay all right the ones that you watch on tv okay well what is fiction somebody tell me what's fiction i know you know what fiction is we've talked about it okay something that's not real okay right something that's not real Right, it is something that is real, okay? That's true, all right? So the superhero stories, you know, that, that we watch on TV, that's fiction, nonfiction? Fiction, okay? It's fun, all right, and we enjoy it, but at the end of the day, it's fiction, okay? Now, what's given in Scripture, fiction, nonfiction? Nonfiction, nonfiction, yeah, okay? 
So that's really important. We understand what's true and then what's not. Okay, what's fiction, what's not fiction. Okay, but back, so back to Jesus conquering Satan. So Jesus has brought Satan down. Okay, Jesus, or Satan in a sense is living on borrowed time. Okay, then his fall started at the cross and it ends when Jesus returns and God will throw Satan into the lake of fire forever. Okay, that's what Revelation promises. Okay, now there's three passages that affirms, or three main passages that affirm Jesus' victory over Satan. Okay, one in, in, uh, in Colossians where it says that Paul writes that, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He triumphed over them. The author of Hebrews writes that that Jesus became, he took on flesh, okay? We talked about that. Jesus took on flesh. He died on the cross so that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who had the power of death. That is the devil himself, okay? And that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, okay? So we have promises in Scripture that Jesus has defeated Satan, okay? Now, how did he do this? How did he do it? Remember what Alan talked about last week? The, uh, about Mr. Alan talked about, G, about Christ paying that debt of sin, right? And they paid it in full, okay? Well, that payment of, for sin is also the basis for Jesus' victory over Satan, okay? Let me read you Colossians, okay? This, this will help you maybe understand it. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this. Here's what Paul writes. He said, when you were dead in your sin... In the sin of your flesh, Christ made you alive together with him, having canceled out the certificate of debt, debt that consisted of sins against you, which were hostile to you. And he's taken it out of the way. He's put it aside, having nailed it to the cross. Okay? So you see what, Je- what Paul s- says right there is, here's what Jesus did, is he took your debt and he paid for it. He set it aside, okay? There's a big word for that. It's called expiation. Everybody say like expiation. expiation. Yep, use that sometime this week in school. That'll be fun, okay? That's a setting aside of a debt that's against you, okay? And what does Paul say? Paul says that was set aside when Jesus nailed it to the cross. Okay, now did Jesus take a debt and actually nail it to the cross? No, what was nailed to the cross? Jesus, right, Jesus was nailed to the cross. He took the punishment for our sin on himself when he died on the cross for us. Okay, so that debt for sin was paid for. But then here's what Paul says next. He says when he, when he did this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he made a public display through them having triumphed over sin. Okay, so you see what Paul says is the basis for Jesus or the basis for Jesus' victory over those rulers and authorities. He's talking about Satan and all of Satan's minions, okay? He says that the basis of Jesus' victory over Satan is his payment for your sins on the cross, okay? The legal debt of your sin uh, that's paid for by Christ, that's, the, uh, that's what he set aside and nailed on the cross. Now, we have that through faith in Christ. We, you know, for all who have faith in Christ, Jesus says, your sins are paid for. I paid for them on the cross. He says, in doing that, he has victory over Satan. Okay? The sin that we owe in our rebellion against God is the basis of Satan's power. Therefore, only through Christ's death on the cross 
is that when our sin is paid, that debt is removed and Satan's power is broken. Okay, think of it this way. If a criminal, okay, in, in, a, you know, in, in a country where, uh, where justice is, is right and the laws are, you know, are, are good and righteous, if somebody's convicted of a crime and they're thrown, they're thrown in jail, right, they receive a punishment for that, okay? The basis for that punishment, why was that person thrown in jail? Because they did a crime, and they were convicted of that crime. All the evidence laid out, okay, it's clear this person stole a whole bunch of money from people, and, they should, and he shouldn't have. Or broke into a house, did something wrong, okay, and they're thrown in jail, okay? That person's in bondage. They're, they're, they're under, they're, they're, uh, they're in prison, okay? They're in prison because they did something wrong. They're guilty, right? So if they're guilty, then, they're, then they're, they're in bondage. Then they're put into prison, okay? Now, if that person were to prove their innocence, say they had a retrial, okay? And, and new evidence came to light. Oh, no, this person's actually not guilty. It's this other person over here. What happens to the, what happens to the man who, who was in prison? Does he stay in prison or does he go free? He goes free. Why? Because he's not guilty, right? Because he's not guilty. Okay, do you see the connection? Okay, that the guilt, right? If you remove the guilt, you remove the bondage. You remove the, the, uh, the, the, the power of the law to hold that person in prison. Does that make sense? Okay? If there's guilt there, what comes next? Prison, right? Bondage. You've tracking with me. Okay? And so the same thing, the strength and the power of Satan over people is the guilt that they have for their, for their sin. That's the strength that Satan has. So when Christ paid for the debt of all who would believe on the cross, he broke Satan's power. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Kind of understand how, how, how Jesus had victory over Satan. Bruce Ware says this. He says, the forgiveness of sin's penalty and freedom from Satan's prison, they go together. Okay? They go together. In Christ's purchase for our forgiveness, he also won victory for us over Satan's powers. Shouldn't we praise God and we give thanks to him for his grace that he has, that he's given us in Jesus? That not only do we have the forgiveness of sins, but then as Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, he also conquered the greatest supervillain who was really, who's really real. Right? All right, well, thank you guys for listening this morning. Let me pray for us, and you can go sit back down. Father God, Lord, we thank you. These are, these are high and lofty ideas, and Lord, we're, we're thankful for the, for the fictional stories that we can watch on TV and read stories about where a hero conquers a villain, Father. And may it point us to the cross where Jesus, our great hero, conquered the power of Satan. Father, he did so by canceling the debt of sin against us so that for all who believe in Christ, we can go free. We can say no longer guilty and the power of Satan is broken against us. Christ stands beside those who 
have faith in him. He clothes them in his righteousness and he says, no longer guilty. Go free and Satan is hands off. So Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord. We know that this is, that this is a process too, that Satan is on a leash, that he's on borrowed time. Whatever work that he does now, Father, it's only temporary. He only goes as far as you permit. And that one day when Christ returns, he'll be cast into the eternal lake of fire. And Father, there will be no more suffering and no more pain. No more death, no more sickness, Father. Only infinite joy in your presence, in your glory. So, Father, thank you for these young children who are here this morning. And just ask, Father, that you would continue to reveal Jesus more and more to them. They would see more of their need for Christ. And they would each put their faith in him. Father, it is only through Jesus that anyone might be saved. Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. You go back to your seat. Stand again, please, if you will.
carries me on eagles' wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumph song I'll Before, uh, before Alan preaches, I want to pray for our missionaries. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we long for and wait for that day when your face forever to behold. Lord, it's a, it's a blessing to worship you on this day, this Valentine's Day, when we, we reach out in our culture and tell others that we love them and how much we appreciate them and how what a blessing it is to know them. And Father, then our eyes, may they turn upward and know you, the one who says and writes in the songs, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. Grace it is that Christ loves his church, loves his bride gave himself up for her that she might be clothed in purity and righteousness. And so, Father, we are grateful for your love this morning. Father, you've given us a commission not to sit and just soak in that love and that it would be just a good feeling. That love might stir us to move on and Glorify your name by the care of others, not just for physical, tangible needs, but for their souls as well. They might know Christ, be given the commission of the gospel, to take the gospel to all nations, that forgiveness of sins might be proclaimed in the, in the name of Jesus throughout all of the world. What a gift of grace that is. So Father, we lift up to you our missionaries that we support in Bangladesh, in China, in Ireland, and in other parts of the world, Father. 
you would strengthen them, Father, that in times of need, you would provide for them all grace necessary for the carrying out of their tasks to bring the gospel to others. That in their suffering, Christ might be their greatest treasure, their greatest comfort, that it might empower them to speak with truth and humility and boldness to those who need the gospel. They might be reminded, Father, that you have many people in this city, as the Old Testament says. And when they have doubts, you might comfort them and strengthen them, that in their weakness, Christ might be made strong. That they would say with Christ to live, that they would say with Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. And Father, would you strengthen us here as we are sojourners in Greer, Greenville, Traveler's Rest, Lyman, Spartanburg, wherever, wherever our tents are pitched. Father, may we be faithful missionaries to take the gospel out to those whom you've put in our paths. May we not be careless about this task, but to carry it with honor and dignity. Father, even if it means suffering, may we say with Paul that it's our joy to bear the brand marks of Christ. So, Father, in all our efforts, globally and locally, may we step out in faith to take Christ verbally and visually, tangibly, to those around us. Father, I want to take a special opportunity to lift up Vody Bauckham and his family as he's suffering the failing of his body. Father, would you strengthen his faith? Provide for him all things necessary to continue proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. Would you strengthen his wife and children, their family, their church, as they rally around him, Father, that it would not be all about him. It would all be about you. Father, you would provide for them all tangible means necessary for healing. You would be with the doctors and nurses who are caring for him. He might receive good care through your merciful grace. And that, Father, you would bring him healing to continue the work that you have for him until you call him home. (coughs) Father, may it be a reminder to us of our own frailties and that our time here is limited. Father, we would all be faithful in carrying out the work you've given us to do. So, Father, as we come and we worship you, and Alan brings your word, would you give him boldness and clarity in the message to be delivered? And, Father, you would touch our hearts where we need it most. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, happy Valentine's Day to everyone. I don't know if you know much about the history of Valentine's Day, but it's a 
there was a beheading involved and all this kind of interesting things. And, but we, we send hearts and all this fun stuff in, in, in light of all that. Um, and I did a good job. Look, my wife is downstairs today. You know me. I'm very bold when my wife is not in the room in my preaching. Uh, you all hold me to it that I don't say something that's going to get me in serious trouble. You know, if I'm headed that way, just, you know, throw a flag on the play, whatever it is. You know, uh, Bob, I don't like this. I can't, I can't see you, you know, if you're making faces at me. So um, I'll try to move around some so I can, I can see you. Uh, glad you guys are visiting with us today. If you have your Bibles open to the book of John, chapter 20. And you can put your finger on verse... 19. Sometimes there are days where it just weighs on you. I know most of you can't or don't identify with this, but some days it weighs on you that, that you're a preacher of the Word of God, that you have to wield the Word of God. And I think it's important that we're sober-minded in that, because if we're flippant when we get up here and we try to handle this living, active word, um, and we handle it in, incorrectly or improperly, which I'm sure happens from time to time, I'm thankful that there's grace in those scenarios because the Lord knows our intention is to wield it right and not to conform it to our agenda. Um, this is not a particularly heavy text. It was a difficult text and one that I wrestled through all week because uh, there's some View, there's a view and perspective that I've wrestled through for year, years, and I've used this week to kind of try to dial that in. Uh, so there's going to be some application. There's going to be some stuff that applies for sure. I think there's going to be some encouragement, but there's going to be a moment where I have to kind of take you into the classroom for just a little bit and help you understand how to navigate through this text and how to rightly interact with this text the best that I can and the best that I understand. Okay, so... So, if you've, uh, if you've been at all familiar with this text, you understand what I'm, what I'm talking about. So, let me do this. Let me share with you my objective today. First of all, kind of the context. Here we are, right, right on the day of the resurrection. We're talking Easter Sunday here, okay? Easter Day, Jesus has put the bookend to the gospel, this is a massive moment. This is a massive, massively important contextual nugget <laughs> that you need to hang on to. Clayton will probably send me that in a hashtag later, contextual nuggets. I know that he'll do it. Uh, so hang on to that. Okay, this is some important stuff that you have to understand, that this is the day of the resurrection. Jesus appears to his disciples, and he's going to commission them. He's going to send them, and he does it in a very unique and rare fashion in a way that is universally applied, but at the same time, it's very specifically applied to the apostles. So we're going to get to that. We're going to see that. But understand, this is the context still, after three weeks, of the resurrection. So we have to navigate through these waters understanding that it is the context of the resurrection. So here's my objective. I want to identify the unique commissioning of the apostles and then to understand our proper role today as it relates to the text that was given then. So hang with me, and we'll get to, uh, get to those things. So John chapter 20, verse 19, I'll just read and offer some commentary, kind of like I did last week, and then we'll go back and look through some of these primary and key teachings through here. So here we are in chapter 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day... The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. 
right? So we know the Jews were afraid. They were skittish, rightly so. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Well, maybe not rightly so, but understandably so. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, this is interesting. The Prince of Peace is coming and he's offering them peace. They're not quite getting it yet, but in hindsight, we're looking at this and we're saying, you have the Prince of Peace, the one who is our peace, according to the scriptures. He's saying, have peace. So there should be no reason for fear. There should be no reason for trepidation or any of these things, but they're not quite there yet. So Jesus very graciously says, look, I know you're afraid. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. He says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He showed this them, hey, this is for us an understanding that this is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I told you several weeks ago, there are all these theories, all these, all these attacks on the resurrection of Jesus, and one of those being that he just rose in spirit form, or maybe they saw him through some kind of hallucinogenic episode. This is more validation, even though we've had tons of validation, of the fact that Jesus rose in bodily form, appeared to them in bodily form. And you one might say, well, he just said, look at the, 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 my hands and my side. But to Thomas, he said what? Touch my hands and my side. So there's no reason to believe that when Jesus appears to these ten, that he was in some kind of phantom form. And then when Thomas came around, he said, well, I'll, I'll be flesh again for you, buddy. No, the idea is that he was absolutely raised physically through the Spirit of God according to the Word of God. So... Here we have Jesus said to them in verse 21, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So there's a likeness in their commissioning, which is very important for us to hang on to for later. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. That's a strange line in this text. And it's important that we zero in to what it means and how it applies and how we rightly respond to this. Because if we don't handle this rightly, we get into all kinds of problems. And so we'll get to that in just a minute. So let's move back through the text. Just trek with me if you can. So the disciples are fearful. They're unbelieving still. They're unbelieving, they're scared, they've hidden themselves in this room, they've locked the door. And you could see why, you could understand this, all right? I mean, you know, some of us in here, we want to we wanna consider ourselves to be brave, to be courageous. Maybe we would look at ourselves and say, I'm going to put myself in that situation, and, 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 and I wouldn't be afraid. Maybe, maybe not, maybe so. But these guys were, and these guys don't have 2,000 years of hindsight. These guys don't have 2,000 years of people going through their death for the sake of that message, for the reality of the resurrection that we can stand on, that we can say, man, these witnesses have gone before us, and that encourages me, that strengthens me. You see, we have it so very easy, so very easy, yet our faith often is waning, our unbelief creeps in, and it rules the day sometimes. So we have no reason to shake a finger at these guys and say, my goodness gracious, what else do they need? Man, they had Jesus in the flesh for three years They had the the teacher of all teachers, the rabbi of all rabbis, sharing with them. I mean, it's straight from the horse's mouth. You know, not that I'm speaking anthropomorphically about Jesus as a horse or anything, but you had it right from him, right from the piper. There it is. And we say, why did they not get it? My goodness gracious, we laugh at them sometimes. Or I have. I mean, I would kill to be there. I would love to have been the one sitting there and receiving the teachings teachings of Jesus from Jesus. 
But I'm convinced that if I were there, I'd be locked behind a door as well. I'd have to hold the hand of one of those dudes in the room because I'd be scared out of my mind because I'm weak. And these guys are in their humanity. And they're afraid because they just saw what the Jews did to this man. And maybe they're connecting the dots. Don't you remember Jesus said to them, look, (laughs) what they've done to me, they're going to do to you. Don't you remember when Jesus said, look, I'm going to send you out as sheep among the wolves. I was called a wolf this week, by the way, so that was fun. Um, Don't you know that these things are going to happen? And he says, and they're going to, these religious people, these people that say, we serve the one true God, they're going to kick you out of the synagogue, and you know what else they're going to do? They're going to kill you in the name of their God. Don't you think the disciples remembered that, that it wasn't lost on them? And so, of course, they're struggling in this moment. And there's something to be said about unbelief in this moment. And I think it's this, the anchor of unbelief prohibits the progression of fruit-bearing action. The anchor of unbelief renders us stationary, and it prohibits the progression of fruit-bearing action. You see, what we truly, deeply believe is always revealed in the way that we live, move, and have our being. And we've talked about this over and over and over again. And for someone that would say to me, why do we always revisit this issue of unbelief? Why do we always talk about these things? I would just take comfort in the response of Martin Luther when he gave the gospel over and over again to his congregation. They came to him and said, why is it that you keep giving us the gospel? And he said, when you start believing it, I'll stop teaching it. And I'm not saying that you don't believe what I'm saying. I'm saying it's always going to be our struggle. It's always going to be our struggle to stay rooted and grounded in truth because we're flesh, because we're broken, and ultimately because we're not God. We're weak. We're frail. The enemy is powerful. The enemy is hateful. He's cunning. He's crafty. He's a lion. He's devouring. This is what he does. So we would be wise to recognize our frailty while at the same time tapping into the source of our strength, who is Jesus and his gospel. Disciples were locked in this room. They were afraid. Their unbelief had gripped them in this moment. And you might say, well, how do you know that they're not believing in this moment, okay? They might be believing, but they just don't want to die, okay? Because I think that represents all of us. Maybe we'd say, we, we do believe, but we don't want to die. I, I, be, I believe in Jesus, I don't, I don't want to be a martyr. I don't want someone to, 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 to decapitate me like, you know, Valentine. I don't want these things to happen. And so we're weak. I get it. And so the disciples are exp- displaying that because the Jews had just done this thing to Jesus. And so they, 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 they have this very fresh, very vivid image and threat that's upon them that says we might be next. So I get it. How are they in unbelief? Well, if you look at the other Gospels, we see that in Luke's Gospel, he says, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? What does he mean? He says, why do doubts arise? Why are you questioning this? Why do you still not believe? The tomb is empty. The ladies came, and they found you, and they told you. Why are you still in doubt? Jesus kind of challenges them on this while being very gracious and saying, peace be with you. And then Jesus says, just a few verses later, in the same text of Luke, and while they still disbelieved, 
for joy and were marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat? So he kind of, <laughs> I don't know. I find it humorous. He just walks in a room. He was dead. Now he's alive. They're processing this. Got something to eat, guys. I'm hungry. Three days in the grave tends to create a little appetite for a fellow, right? So it's an interesting thing that takes place. They give him broiled fish, and uh, things take place from there. So we aren't holding anything against, against these disciples for their unbelief because theirs was a unique situation. But what about our unbelief that creeps in sometimes in our lives? Maybe we don't make excuses for them, but at least we can understand where they're coming from. Because this was fresh. They don't have the benefit that we have of hindsight. They're living in that moment. We haven't had to live in that moment, but they are. So we offer them some grace. But what does it say of us when we have all this evidence, all this time, that we can be sanctified, that we can grow, that we can be sharpened and challenged and refined, that our theology can become, uh, can go from milk to meat, that it can become weak and elementary to robust and solid and strong, you know? And yet we still have these moments of, of unbelief. So I guess my question before we move on to more aspects of this is, are you governed by unbelief? Like they were in this moment, do you have these moments or are there patterns in your life where you're governed by this unbelief? And it manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes we have to step out in faith in order for our faith to be strengthened. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. I think a lot of us want to be endowed with this magical shot of super, super strength. Like we're getting some vaccine against unbelief. You know, I want you to give me the good stuff. I want to be bold. I want to be faithful. And I just want you to zap me with that stuff. And that's not often how it works. What usually happens is I know what's true despite what I feel. I understand what's been taught despite how I feel. So I'm going to step out in the direction of what is true and away from the direction of what I feel and how that pulls me. And when you get out there, what tends to happen over and over again is you find that you're granted this robust faith. Not that you're a self-made man and not that you created or conjured it up yourself, but that you saw something there in Jesus that was trustworthy and true and you stepped out towards him just like Peter did initially when he got out of the boat. But what happens when we start relying on self or we take our eyes away is we sink and we succumb to our unbelief. But this is what's interesting. Notice the difference here. So Jesus, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself in the book of Acts, but you have to see this. Notice the difference once the disciples became solidified in their belief. Once there was no more question in their mind, everything changed for them. And I think this is, this is noteworthy. It doesn't imply that if something's not really happening in your life that you're devoid of faith altogether. But it might mean that your faith needs to be strengthened. And all of our faith needs to be strengthened so that we can be thrusted or catapulted into a new way of living that turns the world upside down because that's what happened to the disciples. There was always this vacillation. There was always this, this waning of, of faith. There was always this wrestling within their minds of, I don't understand this. Is this real? You know, uh, uh, The tomb is empty. Well, let's just go back home. We've got nowhere else to go, as, uh, as Bill said a few weeks ago. And now this moment that we see later that their faith became solidified, that they believed the result was astronomical. I mean, they turned the world upside down. What happens, as you see in these texts, if you look a little bit ahead going into the book of Acts, 
which is why it's just so helpful to read John and Acts together. It's so great. Everything pieces together so well, is that the response of belief was boldness, joy, and worship. That's what happens. That's what happens when your belief moves from milk to meat. That's what happens when your belief goes from elementary to robust. That's what happens when it's more than just the coattails of someone else's belief. When it's more than I've adopted this person's belief. But you take ownership of it yourself. The result is the world gets turned upside down. The result is boldness, joy, and worship. The byproduct of belief is boldness, joy, and worship. Everything changed once the disciples finally believed. From that moment, you never see fear displayed in the lives of the disciples. From that moment, you never saw this. In the other texts, not particularly in John, it shows that they believed. So we understand that these guys in this moment, they did believe. And don't, we can't divorce that from the fact that Jesus breathed onto them or into them the Holy Spirit. From that moment, you never see the fear displayed in the lives of the disciples. When belief takes root, the fruit is boldness. The fruit is boldness. These guys went to their deaths. I wouldn't say throwing caution to the wind, but using wisdom, using truth, understanding the teachings of Jesus that this is how it will end for them. Maybe not exactly how, but that there will be opposition and there, there will most definitely be persecution. But they didn't hunker down. They didn't batten down the hatches. They did what? They rooted themselves in their belief, and that belief became so robust that it produced in them boldness. Not only boldness, but it produced in them joy. If your joy doesn't fill your heart and mind at the implications of the resurrection, then maybe you don't get it. Maybe you don't believe it. Because let's just think about that. The resurrection was the book into the gospel. If if everything in the scriptures would have happened except the resurrection, we would be in trouble. <laughs> but the resurrection happened, which that's the cornerstone of our hope and our joy. And the disciples in these moments where they finally believed, where they finally connected with this truth in total, that it produced in them boldness and joy. Matthew's account records that the disciples worshipped Jesus when they saw him. When our belief in a risen, conquering, advocating king takes over as though no other truth is stronger, it would seem that we couldn't help but worship. And I don't mean singing songs necessarily, but I mean our lives as living sacrifices. That worship. A life that is poured out, that is dispensed for the glory of God. That's the worship I'm talking about, which is the worship that was the product of the disciples' belief Seeing, a belie- seeing and believing a risen Christ changed everything. In other words, the gospel became the root of the apostles' joy, boldness, and worship. So here's a little bit of application for you. If your boldness is waning, I mean, whose doesn't, right? Who, who, whose doesn't? Some days we're bold. Some days we're, we, we're ready to get in the fight. We're ready to wage war against the enemy. Not against other image bearers, but against the, enemy of, against the enemy, Satan. And all of the efforts from the prince of the power of the air, as Austin spoke of at children's time. 
But some days we don't want to get in a fight because the wounds are hard to recover from. Emotionally, psychologically, physically, it's just too much. I watched a video uh, of, of, of a pastor who seems to be one of the boldest people you'd ever know. One of the boldest people you'd ever want to meet and spend your time with next to Jesus, maybe these apostles. And I found it so comforting that this guy, whom I'd looked up to for so long, labored in this video to talk about how tired he was and how hard it was and how sometimes he wanted to quit. I'm like, finally. I can identify with that because I'm somebody that wants to quit all the time. I'm somebody that says, you know what, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to move to... Uh, I'm going to move to Florida and collect seashells for those of you that get the reference. That's what I'm going to do with my life, you know, because nobody hates anybody that collects seashells, right? Nobody hates those people. Nobody slanders somebody with seashells. I mean, it's seashells. They can decorate. You can play with them, stack them. You can do all kinds of things. Nobody hates those people. Who they hate are the people that stand their ground, who anchor themselves in truth, and they wage war against the enemy. And that's who they hate. They'll tolerate you if you're silent. But if you're vocal about the gospel, they hate you. This is why the disciples died. If our, boldness, if our boldness is waning, if our joy is lacking, and if our worship is weak, it could be the product of unbelief. And I'm not saying un, being unregenerate. That's definitely goes without saying. But I'm saying as believers, sometimes our unbelief is just not that strong. And the effect is our worship is weaker. Our joy is not so complete. And our boldness is waning. The depth of our belief is in direct correlation with the distance our boldness will take us. Belief determines action. Which is why the disciples finally responded the way that they did, ultimately giving their lives. Listen, Sunday, most of you know this, Wesley broke his jaw in two places and... It was an interesting event, to say the least. I'm in my bedroom on the telephone with Matt Brock, and my wife screams, I'm like, Matt, there's blood everywhere. Got to go. <laughs> I don't remember what I said to you, man. My wife screamed at me, and I was like, uh, something bad's happening. See you, buddy. Sorry if I hung up on you. Um, and I go in there, and there's just, there's blood all over. It looked like a murder scene. I was like, my wife, what have you done to my child? You know, uh, she's downstairs. I can get away with that today. But she would never do that to my child. So I go in there, and I'm, I'm, I'm freaking out, you know, uh, and, and not making it about me at all. You know, Wesley's obviously going through some serious trauma. He can't close his mouth. There's blood coming from everywhere. My nurse wife, my, my almost 20-year medical professional wife who's actually really, really good at her job, she can't find where the source of blood's coming from. She's yelling at me to go get a, to go get a, a, um, a flashlight. I don't know why. I go get a flashlight. I slap the wall because I'm mad. I'm like, ah, you know, I don't know what to do. I just, I'm, I'm processing this. I go get the flashlight. We're looking. We can't identify it because there's so much blood that's coming out of his mouth. And he's saying, I can't shut my mouth. I can't shut my mouth. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And Sarah's like, goes into professional mode slash mom mode and she's like I'm and I'm like why don't you take him somewhere take him somewhere she's like I've got to find out if it's his teeth or if it's his jaw I'm like yes ma'am so she makes a phone call she takes him and he gets taken care of and he's recovering really 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 well but there was no question on our behalf as to whether or not we were going to get him looked after because we believed he needed it. And you could not have told me otherwise. You could not have come in that room on that day, in that moment, said, it's just a little blood. Eh, it'll be all right. 
put a Band-Aid on it. I'd be like, you're going to get kicked right in, the, right in the face or get out of my way. You know, it was, a, it was a wild moment. But we believed so much that he needed the attention, he needed the help, because that's our son, and we believed that, and nothing was going to stop us from getting him the help that he needed. That's what belief does. That's what that kind of robust belief does. It causes action. It causes a response. And if we're looking forward in the text from this moment and looking at the other gospels, the disciples believed. And from that moment, not only did they never raise the sword again, other than the sword of the Spirit, but from that moment, everything changed in their life. And there was a boldness that was only rooted in belief and powered through the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse 19 through 21 again. Well, let's start uh, 19b. So Jesus came and he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So in these moments, the peace of God is bestowed onto the apostles by the Prince of Peace. Jesus says, Peace be with you twice. The first time, I believe, he's saying, Peace be with you to alleviate their fears. This gracious act of God saying, I know, I know that you're, 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 you're concerned here because you just saw what they did to me. And I've told you that these things are going to happen to you. But be at peace. And the second reason I believe he says it is to prepare them for their commission. I know what's going on. Have peace. But you've got work to do. Have peace. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There is a distinction between the apostles here and all others who believe. So I need you at this point to put your thinking caps on. Okay, we've just entered the classroom. We're going to discuss for just a minute what I think is important to understanding what Jesus meant when he says you will go and forgive sins or you will withhold forgiveness of sins. Jesus calls them his apostles. Now, the term apostle is thrown around a lot today. There are those that use it one way and those who use it another way. And I believe there is a right way to use the apostle and there is a wrong way to use the apostle, or the, the, the title apostle. I think that there is a way that we can use it today and a way that we cannot use it today. The word apostle means those who are sent or the sent ones. So to be very, very clear with you, to be very you know, low-hanging fruit here, it basically means this. Everyone who's a believer in Jesus is an apostle in that sense, is one who is sent because the same kind of language is used for other people throughout the Scripture in addition to the 12, but they're used differently. And no one would, somebody would, but you'd be hard-pressed to make a valid, cogent argument to say that everyone is just like the 12. The 12 were marked. There was a specificity to the way that they were commissioned and to what they were called to do. There was a role that they played in the early part of redemptive history that you and I do not play in redemptive history. But there are similarities 
we have what? The keys of the kingdom being the gospel. So there's a similarity there. We have what? A commission to go and tell the world about Jesus and to share with the world the gospel like the disciples. But we are not in the foundational phases of the New Testament church anymore. Ephesians 2 says that the apostles and the prophets were used to build the foundation of the church. What happens once you build a foundation? You don't keep building foundation. You don't go up anymore or down. You go, I mean, you don't go out or down anymore. You go up. Trust me, I'm a professional in the construction industry, okay? So you build up on top of the foundation. That's the phase that we're in. And the apostles were marked for the specific purpose of laying that foundation so that we can come up behind them and further the building, the structure as the church and the work that we do. So let's get into that for just a second. So I said there's a distinction. This text is both specific in its application and it's universal, which I kind of showed how we can use that. It applies to all in one way, but it applies to only the apostles in another way. And I will say that this is debated, and it's debatable. So if you're hearing this and you take issue with that, I welcome the conversation because it is a highly debated issue. But one of our responsibilities and our promises to you all is that we would try our best to rightly divide the Word of God and say, Here's how we're understanding this as fallible, finite men. But here's our rationale. Here's our argument behind that. And if there's struggles with that, and you have a different rationale or argument for your interpretation, we welcome that discussion because we're all students, okay? I just happen to be called to stand up here and share how I'm understanding these things. And I can learn. And many of you have taught me many things over the years. So I'm just making that open and available to all of you. So this does apply in one way to the apostles, and it applies another way to us. The all application, everyone who is in Christ is sent out, simply put. Very simple. The specific application is that the disciples or the apostles were gathered, they were called, they were trained, and then utilized for a specific assignment unique to them and to the time that they were in with regards to redemptive history. Jesus had a specific assignment for a specific time and people. He endowed them and them alone with specific abilities to carry out this assignment. I'm going to read a lot of this because I don't want to mess it up. Okay, so here's the assignment. To advance the kingdom of God and establish the church with the gospel and to validate that gospel message through the use of miracles, signs, wonders, tongues, casting out demons, healing, etc. Okay? So here we get into where some people might be divided. Some people may say, well, there are still people who perform healings and all this kind of and all this kind of stuff. And I think those are great things to be wrestling through. I'll give you my rationale and then I'm open for discussion at another time. Your MCs would be a great time to lay waste to all those fun things. The question is, is there an apostolic succession? In the sense that we are the same as the apostles. That we are the same as the twelve. Now, of course, the twelve became eleven because of Judas. But then Paul replaced Judas. There's nothing in the scripture to provide any evidence that the apostolic number increased past twelve. Matter of fact, the revelation, the eschaton, speaks of the twelve who hold position in the eschaton. 
And so there's no reason to believe that apostolic succession continues in the sense that we are, that we are apostles like them. And not just that, but to zero in on that, that there's an apostolic office like their office. Like there are some that would call themselves apostle, apostle Ron Carpenter. Uh, and, and that's not no slight to him. That's just, I know that he refers to himself as that, or that church refers to him as that. But there's tons of people that refer to themselves in this way. The question is, do they mean that there's someone who's sent out by God, which I can understand that. I understand that term. I don't agree with it because it can be confusing. Or he's saying, I'm the same as the apostle, and though I meet the qualifications, which were having seen a resurrected Jesus, according to Acts and 1 Corinthians. Let me, let me, let me, yeah, Acts 1.22 and 1 Corinthians 9.1. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but there are these qualifications. So is there an apostolic succession today? Well, sure, yes, we're all sent, so we're all continuing as sent ones because we feel that that great commission applies to us, Matthew 28. And no, first century apostleship was for a specific time and a specific purpose, as I understand it. In the context, Jesus chose his 12 as his ministry launched into action. Peter, as a kind of leader of the apostles, was given the keys to the kingdom, the gospel, so that they could do the work Jesus was leaving for them. Now, I want to be very careful I know that the Catholic camp considers Peter to be the first pope. Obviously, Protestants reject that. I do think Peter was marked out. I do think Peter was significant. He was maybe a first among equals because Peter was the one that Jesus interacted with and said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. He said, flesh and blood didn't reveal these things to you, Peter, upon your confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. For this reason, you are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Not Peter himself, but on the rock that is the truth. The truth, the gospel. That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. The reality of the God-man. To be clear, God still does miracles. I said a moment ago that there are these qualifications. One being miracles, the power to do these things were bestowed upon these men. And I'm not saying that God doesn't still do that. I guess I'm not a cessationist in that sense, but more of a continuist in the sense that God does do miracles miracles. But there's a difference in someone for a season in time who says, I'm giving you the ability to look at someone through the power of the Holy Spirit and say, take up your mat and walk, which happened with the apostles all the time. But it's for a purpose, to validate the message of the gospel, for the establishment of his kingdom, and for the development and establishment of Christ's church in the New Testament. And I told you apostleship has specific qualifications. They needed to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ, Acts one twenty two and 1 Corinthians 9.1. They had to be selected for a sending task. There is no denying that the 12 were selected and marked differently than the rest of the believing world. They must have been endowed with power, 2 Corinthians 2.12. Or 12.12 says this, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now, someone might say, well, that's just saying a true apostle, meaning a true believer. Not in context. The context, again, here, you're establishing a local church. The reason these things took place was to validate the message for the establishment of the church and the, and the, and the furtherance of the kingdom of God. So those who hold to this apostolic succession that we have these powers that we can come and touch somebody and they can be healed. Can I pray over somebody? 
And will may, maybe the Lord will heal them? Absolutely, but that's not me. That's not because he has said, all right, for this season, Alan, I'm going to give you this power so that anybody in here you want to touch, like a faith healer, you can bring about healing in their life. That's not the idea, but the idea is that God still does miracles. God can still do all and anything he wants to do through the prayers of the saints and according to his good will, according to his good pleasure, and according to whatever he desires to do and sees that's best. So those who hold to apostolic succession draw from John 20, 23, and the role of the priest during the Old Covenant. So someone like a Catholic will go to a priest. Why? Because they feel the priest holds an office that, a part, that is a part of an apostolic succession. The priest can absolve you of your sins. The priest doesn't declare that you are right with Christ, but he has the power to make you right with Christ. There is a difference. We can declare these things. We can say, hey, you know, according to the scriptures, if you believe, then here's the promise. So we're relying on the Holy Spirit. We're relying on the truth of God's word and the work of the gospel. We're not relying on ourselves or any power that we have. We're just declaring it. There's a difference in that and me being endowed with some power that makes me like Jesus or makes me like God, whom the Pharisees knew well in Mark chapter 2, that only God can forgive sins. You remember that story, right? The, 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 the friends have this lame paralytic person and everybody's here listening to Jesus teach as Mark recounts the event, and they figure out a way to get through to him by boring a hole out of the roof. What an audacious faith. And they, you know, probably some engineers, you know, uh, and they're lowering him down. I don't know what they're doing. You know, maybe they had a pulley system. Maybe they're just brute strength, you know, a bunch of hole diggers, obviously. So they're, they're lowering him down, and, 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 and Jesus is like, what? what's going on? And he heals the guy. I love the story. It's such an audacious faith. You know, it's such trust that says, you know what? Well, maybe you've got to repair the guy's roof, but I get it. Hey, the guy's healed. You were, you were faithful. You know, and that's, uh, Jesus has that ability. He's the author of forgiveness. He's the source of forgiveness. But to hold to an apostolic succession in that sense, it nullifies the new covenant. Under the new covenant, Jesus becomes our high priest. All those types and shadows from the Old Testament sacrificial system are, guess what, fulfilled in Jesus. There is no longer a need for sacrifices because Jesus is and always will be the sufficient sacrifice. There's no longer any need for a priestly system to make atonement because Jesus has atoned for sins. We're priesthood of believers, but that's a far stretch from the old covenant that we make atonement for sins. That we sacrifice whatever animal on the day of atonement for the remission of sins. We don't do that. There's no need for those things. So there's a difference in we are all sent versus being sent with the same purpose under the same timeline and with the same powers that the disciples were sent out or the apostles were sent out. Well, something interesting happens, and we'll, we'll move through this quickly. Something interesting happened. Jesus walks in and he breathes on them. He breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that you see two big movements of the Holy Spirit in close proximity here. I believe this is when they finally receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because what you see at Pentecost, I believe, is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Because they're two different things. David did not receive the indwelling of the Spirit, but David was anointed with the Spirit all throughout his life. In battle, the Spirit was with him. The Spirit was with him. The Spirit was with him. But now you see that these men receive the indwelling of the 
Holy Spirit. It's interesting, the, the theme of breath when it comes to God in the Bible. He breathed life into Adam. And it's interesting because death and, li- death and li- breathing for God is always associated with either death or life. <laughs> he breathed life into Adam. God breathed life into, into Adam. He breathed the Spirit into the disciples. God's Word is what God breathed. His Word is what? Living and active. Isaiah 11.4, by contrast, says that the, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So obviously there's power, the power of life and death. The two most definitive things in this world, he's, he controls with his breath. This experience was different, again, from Pentecost. This was them receiving the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost was the power of the Spirit being bestowed upon them. And then Jesus says, and we're finishing with this point, and then Jesus says, forgive sins and withhold forgiveness. So those who hold to an apostolic succession, especially the way the Catholic Church holds to an apostolic succession, believes that they have the power to absolve sin. As a matter of fact, if you talk to a Catholic, and I did a lot of research from Catholic sources this week, so I say this with some modicum of credibility, is that one priest said, yes, we do absolve sins. We do forgive sins. We've been endowed with that power. Someone who has committed what they call a venial sin, which is a forgivable sin, can find their absolution on their own through giving of alms, through charitable work, donations, attending mass, a worthy taking of of communion. But when it comes to mortal sin, unless you have perfect contrition, what they say, you have to have a priest, otherwise you can't. You can't find forgiveness. Not in Jesus, the priest. From a Catholic source. Because, because they look at John twenty twenty three, and they say, see? He said to them, you can forgive sins. Without considering the full context of what's going on. In the time of the establishment of the local church. The bookend of the resurrection was minutes ago. And then he's saying, go and do this thing. Why didn't he tell them that before? Because they couldn't take the gospel. It wasn't finished yet. It had to be completed because that's the key to the kingdom. So naturally they would go out and say, if you trust this completed work, then you can have forgiveness of sins. So theirs was a declaration of what the gospel can legitimately do if there's genuine faith. That's what they did. And this distinction is significant because it is one of the major, major separations from Catholicism and being Protestant. If you forgive them their sin, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Forgiveness in its proper context. This is not about being wronged by someone and then you find it in your heart to forgive them. That's not the context. The context is salvation. The context is the gospel. The context is what Jesus just definitively did. This is definitely an easily misunderstood text. It does not mean that you and I have the power or authority to forgive sins. Only God has such authority. See Mark chapter 2. The Pharisees recognize that. It's such a great passage of audacious faith. Calvin points this out. He says then that there is a difference in being a witness or a herald of a blessing versus being the author of that blessing. 
I believe the apostles were given the authority to declare that which God has done. Consider the context. This is the day of the resurrection, the gospel's completion, the keys of the kingdom are in hand. It only makes sense that Jesus would give them the task of declaring the forgiveness of sins and withholding that declaration because it was the power of the gospel that saves men. So here's the application. The apostolic age was successful in its purpose. The foundations of the church were built on the apostles and prophets. The application for us is to build upon the initial foundational work of the apostles in establishing the church. We do this through the gospel. It's simple. We do it through the gospel. Matt will tell you, I think yesterday was 30 babies that were saved. And if you watch videos or if you talk to those people or you're just a fly on the wall out there, you'll see some interesting things. But what you'll notice is there's not a lot of bioethical debating going on. We're just foolish enough to believe that the gospel will change lives. And that's what happens over and over and over again. There's always two components at work when it comes to the church and the kingdom of God. There's the human component and the divine component. Like the apostles, we are also sent. And like the apostles, we are given everything we need for warfare. There's your, there's your similarity, church. Hang on with me just another minute. There's your similarity. They were given weapons of warfare, and so are you. And so are you. In a day when the banner of equality and fairness is waved higher than all other banners, in a day when the mantra of the masses is a demand for love that finds its meaning in hollow, broken cisterns. I was told the other day that our church not only doesn't love, but hates women because we share the gospel with them. That's what I was told. It's been an eventful week, church. In a day when biblical, God-ordained, and defined love is facing its strongest challenge in history, where are we? Where's the voice of truth? God gave the disciples his spirit, and they turned the world upside down. They believed and never looked back. Maybe some of us believe, but we never even look up. We've been given the same spirit and everything we need to turn the world upside down with the message and method used by the apostles. The church growth paradigm is not complicated, by the way. <laughs> you can go to conferences that last a week, days, hours. They'll give you all these strategies for church growth. Not that I'm against any of those things. They're great and helpful. But at the end of the day, the paradigm is simple. You plant, you water, and God brings the increase. It has to be simple for a guy like me to be able to do something like that. Not speaking of Haven Ridge, but just to be someone to give the gospel. We plant and we water, and God brings the increased. A slow process doesn't mean it's an ineffective process. Be encouraged by that. Keep that in mind. And continue laboring and contending for the faith. Because I believe that's the call that we have as those who are sent and do these things. Not because you feel like it or don't, but because it's what you know to be right and true. And may our belief be so strong that it produces in us boldness 
worship, and joy. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, I thank you for the time that you've given me here to interact with your word. Father, I know that some of these things are debatable, Lord. I can't, I can't stand up here in good conscience and just kind of take a neutral position. I may be wrong. I know that. I know that there are others who love you dearly that are, would be in disagreement. And so, Lord, I pray that if someone is in disagreement in this room, that they don't take it as some kind of attack on them. But just my honest understanding as I've tried to labor through this. May there be an economy of grace for all of us as we work through the things of the Scripture that we don't necessarily see the same way. But may we all come together with unity on these first-tier issues, gospel, church, your divinity, life, hope, joy, all of these things. Father, I pray that on this day, this day that we celebrate love, albeit a cultural Hollywood Cupid's arrow kind of love, May we really exhibit what real love is. And that's living. It's doing. It's acting. It's bearing one another's burdens. It's doing what it takes to not be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.